Chapter Five of Pioneer Work in the Alps of New Zealand by Arthur Paul Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman Vaughan. Chapter Five: Waiho River, the High Country, Trek Cutting, Dry Camp Number Five, Wekas, Another Failure, Mapurika, Mount Moltke Spur, Camp Six, Camp Seven, Gale and Shipwreck, Return, Callery River heavy flood marching orders on douglas's return we began to blaze our track to the grass line behind camp two this very trying business is so constantly necessary that i must try and convey some idea of the work the undergrowth in the bush is as a rule so bad that progress is very slow even without a load on one's back but when carrying anything it is almost impossible to make any way at all it is therefore a saving of time to take a bill-hook and blaze, or cut a narrow track, before attempting to carry any load through the undergrowth. When climbing a hill to reach the grass line, this is more necessary than when travelling on flat country, and an ascent of 1,500 feet is a good day's work. Often in the ranges, the bush is fairly open, from 1,500 feet to 2,500 feet above sea level, consisting of large trees and little undergrowth but at the latter altitude mountain vegetation begins to appear amongst the trees, and at 3,000 feet the true impenetrable mountain scrub has to be faced. This varies from 10 to 3 feet in height, and its denseness can hardly be appreciated by those who have not experienced it. I have seen it thick enough to walk and crawl on top of, and in nearly every locality a 5,000-foot ascent is a good day's work. Sometimes it is literally too tangled to force a way through without a billhook to clear a track, even when carrying no load, and any attempt would leave very few garments on the back of the man who tried. The only stuff I know which is impervious to the stiff pointed ends of the stunted vegetation is, quote, gabardine, end quote, made by T. Burberry and Son, Bassingstoke, England. The track which had to be cut from Camp 2 to the grass line was my first experience of this sort of work, and I can safely recommend it to anyone wishing to test his vocabulary. Five hours' hard work only took me six hundred feet up the hill, and now, after considerable experience in blazing, I have decided that a distance which takes an hour to cut will only take four or five minutes to go with a load on one's shoulders after it is cleared. We only clear a width of about two feet, sufficient to get our loads along in comfort. Owing to the wet weather and various other delays, it was 23rd of December before we had our camp pitched in the last piece of mountain scrub, some 4,000 feet above sea level, on the opposite side of the glacier to Cape Defiance and the Unzerfritz Fall. We named this Dry Camp, or Number 5, because there was only one small drip of water from an overhanging rock, which took some hours to fill the billy. A thousand feet above the camp, there was a small peak from which the finest panorama in the district without going above the snow line, can be obtained. Looking south from here was the great Neve basin of the Franz Joseph Glacier, with its tributary icefalls, the Agassiz, Melchior, etc., and beyond them were the fine rock peaks of the dividing range, including Mounts Spencer, 9,157 feet, Gervois, 8,675 feet, and another, 9,511 feet, which I named Conway's Peak, lying on the divide at the point from which the Bismarck Range branches to the north. Across the valley, this range, with its peaks, glaciers, and waterfalls, was seen for the whole of its length, and to the north the coastline could be followed 
bluff after bluff, to the Wanganui River, and still further we could see the Paparoa Ranges north of Greymouth, between ninety and one hundred miles away. When Douglas had rejoined me on the 16th December, we brought up some ten days' stores only, thinking that would be ample for our projected expedition to the Neve. However, the rain and Douglas's illness had kept us back, so we were compelled to economize our food. On Christmas Day we were in fog and could do nothing, so we reluctantly decided to kill one of the pair of wekas which had honored us with their presence. As they had two young ones, we were unwilling to kill either of the birds, but a Christmas dinner looking very doubtful, we shot the male. Previously I had shot a crow, and on opening the weka's crop we had evidence of their extraordinary ideas of food, for in it was the copper cartridge case which had been used for the crow, already partly polished by the stones. Mrs. Weka seemed to take a great interest in our method of preparing her late husband for the stew, and on my throwing the remains aside, her reason was obvious. She at once seized the discarded parts and carried them in triumph to her young ones, no doubt saying, Here, my dears, is part of your poor old father for a Christmas dinner. She then returned, carefully picked up, and gave her promising young family all the remains of the stew. In the West Coast ranges, it is the exception if hilltops are clear of fog after noon in the summer, and generally the clouds form on them as early as nine or ten a.m. Consequently, though the weather is fine in the valleys, we are often unable to do any work on the tops, except in the very early morning. For three days fog prevented our taking observations at or near dry camp. Until we had done this, it was useless to go on to the Neve. The delay necessitated further supplies, and was the more inconvenient because our drip of water had ceased. On the 27th, Douglas went to Camp 2 for some flour, and I took the two billies down to a creek, 6,000 feet below, for water, and shot a bird or two. The 29th saw us with light loads of 30 pounds, pushing along the rotten rocky spur toward the neve of the Elmer Glacier, but again we were doomed to disappointment. At noon we came to a deep gorge, walled by rotten cliffs, down which stones were constantly falling. After an hour's work we managed to find a fair route into the gorge, but the other side was too rotten to ascend. There is no doubt a party of three could traverse this side without much trouble, but we did not consider it safe for two men to put so much dangerous ground behind them if any other route existed, because should any accident occur to one, I doubt if the other could have got out alone. Also, Douglas had been shaken by his recent attack of influenza, and was not fit to do such a difficult and long day as we should have before us. Wherever the schist formation ends and the slate begins, we find terribly shattered rocks, and when this occurs in a precipitous locality, it is often quite impossible to traverse the steep faces with real safety. The gorge that turned us back was near the point of junction of the two formations, and had enormous masses of rotten rock ready to fall. In fact, we could hardly touch any projecting stone, however large, without dislodging it. Having christened the gorge No-Go Creek, we returned to dry camp and, gathering all our goods, left them at 5 p.m. for Camp 2, which we reached at 8 p.m. On the last day of the year we moved to Camp 2, down to our old terminal face quarters, and found that the ice behind the Sentinel had so changed that it gave us great trouble to find a route off the glacier at all. During the next three weeks we had some very bad weather and floods, which considerably delayed my work on Lake Maporica, which I had been sent to survey before we did any further work at the glacier. This and other lakes on the low country lie between high moraine hills left by ancient glaciers. 
they are all supposed by the inhabitants to be bottomless i do not know why except that people seem to look upon a bottomless lake as a luxury and are very angry with the man who destroys the illusion the general rule is that they are not quite so deep as their height above sea level maparica lies about two hundred and seventy five or three hundred feet above the sea so i offered to bet that the lake was under three hundred feet in depth but no one would accept for they said they knew the lake was bottomless when i sounded in fourteen places and found bottom always within two hundred and eighty feet many of the inhabitants of the district took it as a personal insult and have never quite forgiven me while camping on the shore of the lake i heard the cry of the rua or large brown kiwi now nearly extinct and very valuable i believe there are one or two pairs in this locality thanks to a flood putting one of my camps four feet under water and otherwise delaying my work it was the twenty fifth of january eighteen ninety four when i rejoined douglas at the glacier he had been laying off a line for a horse track from nesbitt's to the terminal face we now decided to go along the spur on the western side of the glacier and if necessary ascend mount rune so as to complete our map of the neve as douglas was yet feeling far from well we asked a woodham one of the diggers to come and give us a helping hand for the ten days we expected to be away it was two days before we had our track blazed and camp pitched two thousand seven hundred feet above the flat the view from camp six of the glacier was quite the prettiest picture we saw for the glacier could be seen from the neve to near the snout through a framework of nainai and other trees the nainai is a mountain scrub and grows up to thirty feet in height its foliage is like a large pineapple head some plants have only straight stems with one head while others have gnarled and twisted limbs with a hundred heads the shape of the tuft on the head of the branches gives a tropical appearance to the scene and as it only grows in any quantity near the grass line on the west coast it is rarely difficult to obtain a foreground of apparently tropical vegetation with a distance of snow and ice a combination at once curious and beautiful the grass line was one thousand feet above camp six and it took woodham and me two and a half days to cut through the scrub for that height i never experienced before or since such an impenetrable tangle of vegetation of stunted hard stubborn akiaki broom etc this mountain scrub to a great extent grows downhill that is when ascending you have the branches pointing towards you consequently it is difficult to get into a shrub to cut a limb off near the ground in places it is not unlike meeting a number of fixed bayonets pointing at you and trying to cut the rifle off at the stock with a bill-hook without room to swing it properly on the first of february we shouldered our loads and made along the high ridge towards mount moltke but at noon a fog came up and at three p m the dry fog changed to a wet mist a sure sign of a storm we could not see thirty yards ahead so decided to go down on our right and camp because it was the lee side of the ridge and also because the slopes toward the glacier were practically precipices after descending five hundred feet in the fog we came to a precipice and on going to the right and left found more sheer rocks the mist was too thick to see how deep or of what kind these faces were so having found a small patch of scrub growing on the hillside we decided to stay where we were it took an hour to cut a flat shelf six feet by eight feet out of the hillside with our ice axes on this shelf we pitched our fly stretched on a rope between two ice axes and tied down in every possible direction to the long snow grass we were thoroughly wet by this time and the wind was whistling over the ridge above us from the northwest douglas had a dry shirt and i had a pair of light canvas trousers to put on 
and Woodham had a complete change, so we hung our wet garments outside, there being no chance of a good enough fire to dry them, and put our blankets round us. We were, however, able to make a small fire of scrub for boiling the billy, and having a good drink of hot cocoa turned in. All that night and the next day it blew a hurricane, but this did not affect us much, as we were on the lee side of the ridge. Over our heads we could see the grass and lily leaves whirling about, having been literally torn up by the roots, and between the blinding squalls of rain we watched the sea whipped into one sheet of foam by the squalls. The high wind and heavy rain dispersed the fog of the previous day, and enabled us to look at our surroundings and see where we had got to, a point which we had been unable to decide the previous evening. From Conway's Peak, at the extreme south corner of the Franz Joseph Glacier, the Bismarck Range branches off in a northwesterly direction towards the coast, dividing for a mile and a half its neve from that of the Fox Glacier. At this point, a short ridge, the Chancellor, branches off for five miles nearly due west, and a mile and a half further on the Bismarck Range is Mount Andereg, 8,360 feet, which sends an offshoot to the west for about seven miles. Between these two diverging ranges the Victoria Glacier lies, and beyond them the Fox Glacier flows, first along the Chancellor Ridge, and then passing the snout of the Victoria Glacier, continues along the foot of the second range. Andereg's Peak and Mount Rune, 7,344 feet, which lies a mile north of it, gives rise to the Fritz Glacier, which is bounded on the south by the second range, and on the north by a spur which comes off Mount Moltke, 6,509 feet, a peak a little north of Rune. The Fritz Glacier is the source of the Waikukpa River. On Mount Moltke is a small ice field which sends its drainage to the east down Harper's Creek by Cape Defiance, and to the north gives rise to the Oemorua River. After leaving Moltke, the Bismarck Range continues north for four miles, sending off several short abrupt spurs to the west, between which are valleys some 1,500 feet in depth, walled by high precipitous sides. These are drained by Dry Creek, which flows into the Waiho River six miles below the glacier. Some idea of the great steepness of these valleys and ridges may be gained by the fact that, near the head of Dry Creek, a straight line could be taken for a mile and a quarter in length, which would cross three ridges of 5,090 feet and two valleys of 1,500 to 2,000 feet deep. This is often the case on the West Coast ranges. The main chain of the Southern Alps sends off more spurs and branch ranges of considerable altitude on the western slope than on the eastern. All these have deep valleys between them and descend from 10,000 feet and upwards to within 500 feet of sea level in a distance of less than 10 miles. Those valleys in which there are glaciers present high precipitous sides of rock, and in the lower portions, the rivers descend through dark bush-clad or bare rocky gorges, beautiful scenery, but ugly from the unfortunate explorer's point of view. On the 2nd of February, when the fog cleared, we found ourselves camping on a very steep hillside, near the head of one of the branches of Dry Creek. The other side of the valley, for 1,000 feet or more, was almost a precipice with grass and stunted scrub clinging to it in places. The storm still raged furiously, and as our aneroids had fallen 1.10 inches during the night, Douglas and I put on our wet clothes and made the fly ropes taut, gathered some bits of scrub for the fire, and retired again to our blankets. So long as the wind came from the northwest, it was fairly warm, and we were more or less sheltered by the spur above us. But, about two hours after dark, it veered round as usual to the southwest and blew with all its force onto our shelter 
bringing with it hail and sleet instead of rain. There is a fixed rule, which rarely has an exception, as to weather on the west coast, namely that northwest wind always brings heavy rain, followed by southwest hail and rainstorms for a day, and then fine weather again till the next nor'wester. As soon as the wind therefore veered round to the southwest, we knew that twenty-four hours would see fine weather, and as the temperature fell, our spirits rose. Douglas had turned in, in his dry shirt. I was in my thin canvas trousers only, but Woodham, luckily for himself, had on plenty of clothes. Towards midnight the gale increased, and the wind howled round us in furious gusts, trying to dislodge the fly, which was flapping about in an alarming manner. Douglas had just said, it's deuced lucky that we tied her down so well, when a squall struck us again, and after a brief struggle with the canvas, it broke a rope, and in half a second the whole arrangement had gone away in the darkness. Up we all scrambled, Douglas and I in our airy costume, as there was no time to find and put on our wet clothes, and began to struggle with the canvas. The wind seemed literally to leap on us, driving the hail with almost irresistible force, and making it very difficult to rig up any kind of shelter. After nearly a quarter of an hour battling with the fly, tumbling over one another in the dark, and slipping down on the wet and steep grass with our bare feet, we managed to put up a rough shelter. Cold as I was, with my almost naked body, I almost smiled at Douglas's wild appearance, seen at intervals in the uncertain light, when we came near one another, his solitary garment fluttering in the wind and every moment a hasty remark would be heard as he slipped with his bare legs on the wet grass. Neither Douglas, in his long years of exploration, nor I, have had our shelters blown away before. And if the hail stung his bare legs, as it stung my bare back and chest, I feel sure neither of us will ever neglect a precaution which would prevent another such experience. As soon as we had any shelter at all, we got under it, and allowed Woodham to finish fixing the ropes. We then donned our wet garments, having wrung them out, and, rolled in our wetter blankets, lay waiting for dawn. Poor old Douglas was chilled to the bone, and I really feared he would be unable to face the storm and journey down at daybreak. As soon as the first streak of light allowed us to see, Woodham began to kindle a fire. Everything was wet as possible, but by burning a candle and dropping the grease onto a piece of rag, and lighting that, he gradually charred and dried enough twigs to make a blaze. In two hours we had a billy full of boiling cocoa, and with the help of that soon made Douglas warm. My young bones and blood did not get the cold into them like his, for there is a great difference in the staying powers of a man under thirty and one over fifty years of age. At noon the wind was still blowing a gale, so we decided to go down to the hospital and leave everything where it was. When we reached the top of the ridge the fog came again, and we found the force of the wind very great. Several times we had to lie down for some seconds, or we should have been blown away like flies. Whenever possible, we descended and traversed the steep face on the lee side of the ridge. At one time we must have been in a thundercloud, as our axes hummed. In three or four hours we reached the shelter of the bush, and at 7 p.m. arrived at the hospital where dry clothes, a good fire, and hot tea made us happy. This was Woodham's first experience on the higher country, and he said it would be his last. He thought it a very poor game. But his disgust was only temporary. He was far too enterprising a man to be so easily daunted. In two days the weather cleared, and we returned to the scene of our late discomfort to complete our work and bring down the things. On the way we called in at Camp One, at the terminal face, 
and found it blown down and all my photographic plates which had been exposed up the glacier had been exposed a second time to two days rain eventually it proved that not many were spoiled but this is an instance of the difficulties which i had to contend against for my photographs having gone along the ridge beyond our camp to a point from which we could get observation into the neve and complete the map we picked up our camp and returned to the diggers huts the only incident worth mentioning which occurred on our second trip along the ridge was one which might have been a serious accident the outer ranges often have deep and narrow fissures in the rock after reaching the grass line sometimes these are three hundred feet deep or more and only a few feet broad easily hidden by the long snow grass on this spur there were several small ones a foot or two broad and perhaps twenty to fifty feet deep coming down the grass ahead of douglas i heard a cooee from above and being unable to see him on looking up i returned and heard another below me so i went down again thinking i had been mistaken when a third cry came from behind putting down my load i was again ascending when i heard a voice on my right you might pull a chap out of a hole it appears that poor douglas had walked into one of those fissures which was luckily narrow and his load had jammed preventing him from falling below his shoulders we soon had him out none the worse for the mishap on reaching the diggers huts with our various belongings a day or two later we were greeted with news of the gale which had done an immense amount of damage all over the district roads were blocked houses blown down and no prospect of the mail getting through for some time douglas now had another attack of his influenza brought on by the recent chill and he retired down to more comfortable quarters at the lake i stayed on the hospital with the diggers and spent my time in preparing the map and going up and along the burster ridge on the north side of the Calorie river to get bearings and photographs into the head of that river and the totra there is gold in the reaches of the river above the gorge and several diggers have been into the upper valley no possible route exists through the gorge itself owing to the very precipitous sides so a track has been blazed up mount muller three thousand seven hundred feet and along the ridge to the grass line this ridge is easy but tiring yet the inhabitants of the district look upon it as a breakneck and difficult journey several young fellows have been so frightened by the travellers tales told by the older diggers that they would sooner do anything than try to go over the burster the calorie river drains mount ellie de beaumont ten thousand two hundred feet which sends down two fine ice fields the burton and the spencer both primary glaciers the saddle at the actual source of the river a mile or two above the burton glacier leads probably into the wataroa river nearly under the lindenfeld saddle which lies at the extreme head of the great tasman glacier at present the topography of the upper waters and tributaries of the wataroa river is very uncertain but i think it is safe to assume that the lindenfeld and calorie saddles lead into the same valley i have never been on the former but knowing the western ranges so well could easily decide the point and hope before long to be able to do so from the burster mount ellie de beaumont is a beautiful cone rising out of the two glaciers to its right mount green nine thousand three hundred and twenty five feet and the minarets are seen rising out of the neve of the same glacier the spencer a pass could be made between green and ellie de beaumont on to the head of the tasman glacier opposite mount darwin about the middle of february we had five days of heavy rain and several slips occurred on the glacier branch causing the bed of the river to rise eight or ten feet with gravel and other debris the result was that the water overflowed its usual flood channels and cutting in behind the wire bridge above the hospital washed away its supports 
the bridge consequently gradually became less taut and at last touched the water strong as the wire ropes were they hardly resisted the rushing torrent for a second but snapped like twine and the whole structure collapsed a flood of such magnitude is worth seeing on the glacier branch great icebergs which had broken off from the glacier careered madly along crashing and colliding against one another and huge boulders could be heard bumping down under the water in the calorie gorge the water was thirty feet above its normal level and on emerging from its narrow rock-bound channel onto the more open ground it spread out right and left in huge waves trees and stones were swept along with tremendous speed and force after the river subsided we found a mass of ice blocks stranded amongst the trees in the bush by the hut all the claims were filled with debris and unworkable for days and in some cases the men had to wait for weeks until the river had scoured out some of the gravel in its bed and lowered its level thus enabling them to get sufficient fall to carry away their tailings as soon as i could find a horse on which to ford the river i went up to the glacier to see what damage the flood had done in places the terminal face had retreated five or six yards owing to the masses of ice which had broken away and at the outlet on the east side there appeared the finest ice cave i have ever had the pleasure of seeing it was one hundred feet high and about the same breadth while quite fifty yards inside a ray of sunlight could be seen coming through some crevasse which had opened through the ice above at that point the cave seemed to still maintain its dimensions but beyond was inky darkness this glacier had since eighteen sixty seven been well known at its terminal face as it only necessitates a ride of fourteen miles up an open river-bed from the sea beyond the snout only had been explored twenty years or more before our visit douglas says he remembers hearing of some maoris who were prospecting for gold with the early diggers on the river flats going up to look at the ice at that time it came down to the sentinel rock and the large cave out of which the river flowed was between the muller and the strontian rocks the maoris on seeing this imagined that it was a tunnel through the ranges to some unknown country on the other side from which all gold came so they brought up a large dugout canoe and having obtained some short poles with steel hooks on the end they started into the cave on a voyage of discovery using the hooks against the icy walls after they had gone in some little distance it is presumed a block of ice fell near them or they heard one of the cracks or groans which we so often heard on this glacier because the canoe suddenly shot out into daylight again and her crew jumped ashore saying the typo devil was in the cave i ought perhaps to have mentioned before that waiho means smoky waters it is difficult to decide whether the maoris named it because of the very milky appearance of the water or because of the peculiarly thick white fog which hangs over the stream not encroaching at all on the banks but only covering the actual water the river has more silt coming down it than any other on the coast and its water is very milky at the mouth End of chapter five